This is the Art of Darkness podcast with Kevin Kautzman and Brad Kelly. We're a couple of very online writers interested in the dark side of what drives creative people to create against all odds. This show is about art and the people who make it, what it costs them, and what it takes to bring something unique and impactful into the world. Each episode, we excavate the life and work of an artist you might think you know. Don't worry, they're all safely dead. On every episode, we try and find out just what the hell was wrong with them and how they worked through their darkness to create something that lives on after them and continues to move culture. Find us online at artofdarkpod.com and on Twitter at artofdarkpod. All right, we've got some sponsors for the pod now. Wait, what? Every link you need for the things we talk about here is at artofdarkpod.com slash sponsors. First up, books. If you're into this podcast, Odds are you're probably a reader. We've got links to buy new books from bookshop.org and used books from alibris.com. And if you want to listen to your books, we recommend and use audible.com. It's great and the catalog is huge. All right. So if you're listening to this, you are online. Maybe you're very online. You probably have a website or are thinking of starting one. Maybe you want a website like artofdarkpod.com. We built that with WordPress, which is by far the most popular way to create websites. And the single best host for serious WordPress is WP Engine. I've personally used them for over a decade now, and I don't host my websites anywhere else. Go to artofdarkpod.com slash sponsors and click on the WP Engine link to learn more. Finally, the best way to support the show is at patreon.com slash artofdarkpod. Get the bonus After Dark content for every episode, access to the book club, and more. Thanks for supporting Art of Darkness. And I, I don't think that was too painful. I think no, we did a pretty good job good. there. Yeah. Yeah, that sounded good. Yeah. Yeah, we appreciate it. All right, we are back with another action packed, fun, exciting, funky scream of a darkroom episode we're gonna have a scream today on art of darkness i'm kevin Couchman, and i'm joined as ever with the great brad kelly uh brad how are you i'm doing pretty well man i'm uh i'm ready to talk some arto yeah we our toe is is approaching Faulkner tier here. We mm-hmm. keep talking about the mad lad of the french uh <laughs> theater and global theater Antonin Arto, and we're going to do that on this dark room episode with uh, a friend, I, uh, a person I consider a friend, and uh, and a colleague uh, of the theater, uh, director and playwright Monty D. Montalegre. Monty, how are you? I am doing good. How's everybody doing today? Fantastic, fantastic. Excellent. Never better. Excellent. I, never better. I, I and it's very very good to have you on. Monty, and I know you're excited about a couple of things that you mm-hmm. have going on. Uh, so why don't we we lead with that before I do a little bit of uh, housekeeping? I listened to the new podcast, yeah, that you have going on. So why don't you quick pitch that, and then Absolutely. later on we can we can talk about it even more. Yeah, yeah for sure. So my name is Monty D. Montalegre. I am uh, one of the members of. Wolf Mountain Workshop, it's me and my buddy Alex, and we just released, started releasing episodes for our new audio drama podcast called Ink the Podcast. That's INC the Podcast. It is a sci-fi office comedy about two aliens named Bethany and Jonas working at a bottom of the totem pole job 
on a ship that goes around the universe uh, eating planets for their natural resources. So if that sounds interesting to you, go ahead and give that a listen. Listen to the first episode today. Very funny. It mm-hmm. gets Brad. You listen to? I did. Yeah, yeah. I didn't mention that. Does it get the the rare double banger? Double banger. Thumbs up. Yeah, thumbs. it's a double banger. Yeah, I'm gonna <laughs> listen banger. to the rest of it. For double sure. banger. Yeah, it really mm-hmm. funny and well produced. Not overproduced. Uh, the humor mm-hmm. is uh, very dry, and uh, <laughs> I love the the handling of the the terrible AI computer music. <laughs> I uh, I wrote that myself, and Excellent. I sent it to Alex. I, I do a lot of the songwriting. He does a lot of the sound editing. I wrote that we wrote it and we wrote really annoying chip tune in the script. <laughs> and then I went and I composed it and I composed the most annoying song I could. And I sent it to him over discord with just the caption, fuck you. And then <laughs> I sent him the second version, which is even more annoying with the same thing. And then I sent him the dirge version uh, for when the AI is resetting itself and all of it would just fuck you, fuck you, fuck you. But it does not show up in discord on the notification that you sent a file, just the words. So he thought I was very upset with him <laughs> that evening. Oh dear. I love well, the I love the creative project of like, and I've done this occasionally in writing where you're like, all right, now I gotta try really hard to make something that sucks. Like because <laughs> like, that's the effect you're going for. I want to annoy people or like, yeah, I don't want this to be good. So yeah. Yeah, I've promised the audience that this is going to be really bad for a couple of minutes here. <laughs> yeah, and that's that's a challenge. That is a creative challenge for sure. And you know, yeah. there's some guy out there who's like, "This isn't this isn't too bad." <laughs> this is, well, I'm into this. Well, yeah. I'll, I'll send that guy the the seven minute file that I sent. There you to go. Alex. The, the director's <laughs> cut. Yeah. Hey, you know, he he, he finds you after the show, uh, is, you know, gets big, and he's like, "Bro, can I have the wave file for that? Can Absolutely. I have the raw file." <laughs> <laughs> absolutely do whatever you want with it please get it out of my computer <laughs> hypothetical person with no taste uh right so we'll talk a little more about ink and then i also want to mention that it, it i don't know if you said it but maybe repeat it where can people hear this ink. you can uh wherever you get podcasts you can find it you can find us on social media at uh ink the podcast that's inc the podcast all lowercase all one word all the time or you can find us on our Buzzsprout, which is inkthepodcast.buzzsprout.com. That'll link you to any streaming service that you want to listen on. And this awesome. is brand This is brand new stuff. Monty's got a great wit, very funny. And, you know, go listen to this. Go support it. You just launched it very recently, didn't mm-hmm. you? Yeah, yeah, on the 16th, we released the first three episodes. So there's about an hour and a half of content that you can go and listen to right now. We're going to list, uh, release... Two more episodes on the 30th, and then you're going to get another one every other Monday after that. Awesome. And without belaboring it, this is how it's done, folks. I know that Rick and Morty is in the news right now. Maybe we don't want to uh, go too deeply into that. Uh, But this is how the the next, and I'm not comparing it to Rick and Morty, (laughs) but I'm saying that this is how it's done. You do it yourself. You never know who hears it. You make something you love, you're passionate about, and mm-hmm. uh, Monty, you know, we we wish you a lot of success with it. I want to talk a little more about it, but let's get the show kind of on the rails. I also want to Absolutely. mention the uh, the It's All Red play, which we did at Bad Mouth yes. uh, Theater Company. Um, real quick, so if you want to listen to something else that uh, Monty wrote, 
check out It's All Red, like a metaphor or something, at badmouthtc.com. Just click on the podcast link. It's the Mouthing Off podcast. It's one of four readings we did last year. And that one, hilarious. Mm-hmm. Far out, talking skeletons, very theatrical. Mm-hmm. And our we produce just like a, a reading of it. So it's not quite as highly produced as ink. But if you can't get enough of Monty, if you want to take the Monty pill, check it out. <laughs> go ahead. Go take that. All right. Uh, go take that pill. <laughs> yeah. Take the Monty pill. Uh, beautiful. So today we're going to talk on the dark room. Uh, this is just a, a space for us to make additional room to talk about our toe. And we've already done a few of these mm-hmm. for him, but it's such a deep, well to mine we could just you know we can just keep dragging up new horrors over and over <laughs> um right. and so i you know i just got a tease we're gonna do about an hour with monty here on the main and then for patreon we're gonna do another 20 or 30 minutes on the after dark patreon.com slash art of dark pod if you want to hear that on the after dark we're specifically going to talk about another subject we covered anna is nin and her impressions of our toe, because our, our toe fell in love with her. Uh, I think we briefly touched on this, but I was looking at this book, Blows and Bombs, Anthony Artaud, mm-hmm. the, the biography, and I was reading some of her impressions, and it was just so perfectly uh, moody, mm-hmm. goth, <laughs> goth levels of angst. And anyway, so Love we'll it. talk about that. I also want to talk, I want to go into more detail about what Artaud claimed happened when he met Hitler in a bar it, it okay <laughs> okay yeah yeah we always try to save the uh the austrian is it corporal or colonel we try to save the yeah. austrian painter for the after dark that's as right a rule. that's right if yeah he's gonna come up that's the that's the place for him for yeah sure. generally speaking um and then we'll talk mm-hmm. on the after dark a little more about monty's work uh on ink and it's all red and what he's got going on but i'm sure in the main episode we'll do that too the core the core of this uh dark room episode is going to be devoted to uh, Monty's impressions of our toe, <laughs> some of his thoughts, and then we're going to go into this kind of lost and, and rediscovered very early surrealist film, which our toe wrote or wrote portions of. We don't have his screenplay, apparently, right. but they've restored it. And this is something you found, Brad. <clears throat> yeah, yeah the, the, the yeah. seashell, the seashell and the clergyman. Um, which was a, uh, it said the scenario is by Arto. It's actually directed by, um, oh, what is her name? Uh, Germaine Dulac, who is a, you know, a surrealist filmmaker. She also made other stuff too. She made some more, some more, some commercial films and some, mm-hmm. some documentaries and things. She has quite a, quite an impressive career and would be an interesting subject in her own right. So she directed this film based on a scenario by Artaud. She wanted to say she wanted the byline to be "Dream" by Antonin Artaud, directed by Germaine Dulac. So um, I was trying to, yeah. So it, it's pretty interesting stuff. It is a far out movie, especially Wild. if you think about the context of 1928. Mm-hmm. Um, you know what was going on with the medium of film in 1928 and what these people were up to. So yeah, I'm, I'm kind of looking forward to talking about that a little bit. You could see, I don't know if David Lynch ever got his hands on it, but there are some moments where you go, well, yeah, it's very interesting. This reminds me of certain things that David Lynch has done. And I'm sure experimental mm-hmm. film all through the ages has, mm-hmm. you know, it draws back on it. But it was sort of overshadowed by, is it, what's the famous Brunel 
Unshan um, Andalou or what or whatever. Yeah, I, yeah. I would mispronounce it, but that the, the film that uh, Salvador Dali was involved in, right? That came out, I think, a year later or something like that. Mm-hmm. Um, that's generally thought of as like the appearance of surrealism on film is mm-hmm. that movie. But but you know, the seashell and the clergyman was uh, was there all along. So and I like plenty think- weird. It's yeah, plenty it weird. Super <laughs> weird. I like to think that when they say scenario by Antonin Arteau, he's like like out of his mind on heroin. Yeah. And at a party and he's, he's just or just hanging out. And they're like, I have an idea for a movie. Yeah, yeah. The seashell of the clergyman. <laughs> oh <Ooh>. yeah. <laughs> or he's just like trying to recall some other evening he was strung out somewhere. Right. And this is what he described. <laughs> right. Yeah, there's 100. an alchemist and a general <laughs> with a sword. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Broken well, glass everywhere. You know how yeah. it goes. Oh yeah. my goodness! Yeah, and music, music, terrible music, oh. haunting music, beautiful, terrible music. Mm-hmm. Yeah, loved it. Mm-hmm. Right, music for a Brooklyn loft. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Monty, you're a playwright. You're a yes, theater guy. When, when were you first uh, exposed to Antonin Artaud and his ideas? And does he have any influence on you directly? I mean, I think we're all influenced indirectly, yeah. if not directly. Yeah. You were actually my first introduction to Artaud outside of like just uh, a mention of theater of cruelty in a class I took in college. Because uh, we were both part of the Cut Edge Collective when you were in New York City. And the first salon, the reading you brought was from Theater of Cruelty. And that was my first actual like interaction with Artro. Uh, so pretty late. I love the idea of Theater of Cruelty and being cruel to an audience. And I think that idea has had an influence on me directly, although his more direct work I've interacted with less. So I don't think it has as much of a direct influence as an indirect influence. Well, we did that one episode here um, with Badmouth where we adapted the radio play uh, mm-hmm. that, he, that he wrote. So that's out there to have done with yeah. the judgment of God. I'm glad I could uh, <laughs> like a, like a cat lay our toe like a like a dead mouse <laughs> very Andre. much so and i listened to that episode that is oh yeah <laughs> that's brutal that is a brutal radio play <laughs> yeah yeah it really is we had a lot of fun doing it it uh i feel like uh, the actors gave a lot uh you have to there's no other way to yeah. do it oh well, right. it's definitely it's definitely that was actually when i started to really i feel like internalize this concept of the theater of cruelty because i listened to it and i was like wrapped with attention and then about three quarters of the way through i'm like man this is a bit much like, <laughs> like <laughs> it's tense you can like feel it in your shoulders the whole yeah. time and I, like i don't do a lot of acting but i i don't usually subscribe to the acting theory that the words are all you need but with our toe some of those monologues all the you need is the words you're gonna spiral with that and that's all you need to do yeah Yes. Sure. Yeah. We really had fun with that. He's such an interesting figure and so influential. Uh, and you you watched, I think we've all watched The Seashell and the Clergyman. And I yeah. think this episode will be fine whether or not you've, you've seen it, but definitely yeah. put that, we'll throw it. that into, yeah, put, throw that into YouTube. Brad, now this was rediscovered and there are some versions out there that like other 
musicians have like done their own it's, score for us. Yeah, you have it's, to be careful. Yeah, it's mm-hmm. been rescored multiple times. Um, I the score that we I believe in the uh episode, the the version that we watched or that I was sending around, it was scored by somebody named Pascal Cornelade. Okay. I think Comalade. Um, and I, I'm not even sure honestly when that how that fits into the history, which one that which well, which scoring that is. Let's um, let's do that thing where I read from Wikipedia and we just get a general sense of what this thing is before I go into some of the background from the book. Does that oh, work? I, I have a great summary. Oh, do it. Okay. Um, okay. Summar- summarize it. Yeah, summarize it first. And then, yeah. Okay. Let's see yeah. if we agree with this summary with yeah, this I one. Think that's, that's what's kind of interesting. Cause I watched it and then I read this and I was like, huh, that's kind of <laughs> right. Okay. So this is from Bettina Knapp who is um, written quite a lot on our toe. Um, Okay, so in the field of cinema, quote, in the field of cinema, Artaud felt the objective should also be to search out and reveal the dark, darkest truths in man and stated in images uh, which, quote, do not take on any extraneous meaning from the situation which develops around them, but rather from an interior and powerful necessity which brings them to light. Pure cinema would then be a restoration of certain instinctual sensations and vibrations. Okay. Now, here's she's, she's talking about the film itself. The Seashell and the Clergyman is a series of illogical and disparate images and sequences. I think we agree with that. Yeah. Which do not follow any unified story form. The first scene shows an alchemist's workshop. A figure garb, uh, garbed in black like a clergyman is performing an alchemist's experiment, pouring liquids from one vial into another using an oyster shell for this purpose. He then smashes smashes the emptied vial. And that's a cool image. He's just he's got a, a mountain of glass. And like, the first time vials. you see it, you see it for like a quarter of a second. Right, it's right. Shrouded it's in like, smoke. And you're like, what is that? What is that? Right, exactly. Yeah. Uh, the door opens. A much decorated officer wearing an enormous sword enters. He stands shadow like behind the clergyman. Suddenly he grabs the oyster sh- shell and smashes it with his sword. The room trembles. Now, I think it does more than tremble. It's like a whole uh, full on like hallucinatory experience. The uh, the officer exits. Sorry, I got to scroll here. It's, this is not an ideal the officer exits, the clergyman follows, walking on all fours. Change of scene, a street. And then we have this very jaunty, like, driving down the street bit. <laughs> so romantic. Now we're in, now we're in uh, Paris. And, right. Uh, <laughs> yes. Yeah. A carriage passes with the officer and a beautiful woman beside him. Now the pair are, now the pair are in a confessional. Now, what it doesn't describe here is as it's driving down the street, you've got shots up at the buildings, and then the buildings are, like, alternating between different architectural styles. Mm-hmm. I don't know if you, Kevin, you caught that. And I, I, I'm not even sure because I don't know what, what Paris 1928 looked like. I don't know if we're going back or forth or different. Like, I'm not even sure exactly what the, the whole film uses a lot of like long fades in and out of shots where they're overlapping a lot of double exposure. Yeah. And in that scene, just as buildings meld into one another, as you're going down the streets of Paris, just chasing this car with the officer and a beautiful woman in it. Yeah. Just yeah. Oh, as this like romantic music plays in the background. Right. It's bizarre. Right. <laughs> it's surreal. And then later <laughs> there's the flame just coming out of the floor. I, yeah. I think it's out of the checkered tiled floor. Yep. Very yep. curious. Yeah. Hmm. The, uh, so the, uh, the clergyman uh, pursuing them lunges at the officer. T- turns out to be a priest. He vanishes into space. 
The clergyman throws himself upon the woman. As one does. As one does, you know. Uh, The clergyman throws himself upon the woman and is about to lacerate her breasts, which become transformed into shells. A succession yeah, of scenes. and yeah. you see it all there too. Very interesting. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I was yeah. kind of, I was kind of um, surprised by that. I had to pause it during my lunch break. And take yeah. A- <laughs> yeah, like this one's for when I get home today. Yeah, yeah, for real. <laughs> Not yeah, safe no. for work. Oh. Yeah. A dark road along which the clergyman and women are. Uh, okay, a succession of scenes. A dark road along which the clergyman uh, and woman are running. A shadow which the clergyman strangles. An immense glass bowl into which he puts the shadow's head. A ship on deck of which the officer lies enchained. The clergyman running under high vaults and stalactites. A ship passing back and forth. Lights penetrating a ship's cabin. W- uh, women cleaning the cabin and smashing the glass glass bowl in which a head appears and disappears. A governess in black holding a Bible. Okay, we, this goes on and on and on, right? <laughs> now, towards the end, the medieval alchemist, whom the clergyman represents, spun out his life trying... Oh, this is where she's sort of explaining what she thinks is happening, right? The medieval alchemist, whom the clergyman represents, spun out his life trying to transmute and finally unite opposing substances, the secrets of chemical transformation, the alteration of substance, uh, have parallels in psychic processes, the unconscious phenomenon of nature. Artaud is bent on discovering the secret of transforming substance, the activating spirit in every individual, which, when penetrated and used to a purpose, may make him whole again. Um, so she's making some pretty bold claims a little bit later in this essay where she basically says Artaud's, this is a quote from her again, Artaud's fragmentary, bizarre, and somewhat chaotic, somewhat chaotic (laughs) scenario is a confession of his own gnawing loneliness and passionate desire to stabilize the conflicting forces within him. It is a dossier and one of the most candid figures of his time. I don't know that I would have got that just from watching it personally. I don't know. Uh, hmm. Well, what did you make of it, Monty? <laughs> I, I'll say I agree with the loneliness aspect of it. I think that, that the clergyman, the alchemist, whatever we want to call him, appears in this film as a very lonely figure. Hmm. He's alone in a dark room, smashing glass on the floor. And the only person that comes to greet him is a man with a giant sword to smash his toys. Right. Uh, and then he spends a good portion of the rest of the film chasing a woman mm-hmm. who seems to want nothing to do with him. Right. right. She's almost always running away from him and he yeah. is always chasing her. Mm-hmm. I the, the feeling I got from it, uh, along with loneliness, was just this sense for the character of emasculation. Mm. Like you he's sitting in a room. He is he's got this fluid that he's putting in jars and then throwing away. And then a man with a giant sword breaks his shell. Right. And he spends the rest of the movie chasing a woman until like they're in a scene together around a big glass bowl. And then she disappears. And at the end, he's drinking the fluid from that oyster shell. Right. 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 Yeah. It's quite a, it's like a cinematic incel anthem. Yeah. In, in a way, but I don't think Mm. it, I don't think it necessarily celebrates the character of the clergyman. Mm, no, no, I, it's this is a process that he's sort of either caught up in or he's enacted or or I mean, yeah, it's sort of like he's he's been if trying anything, It's got this kind of sneering pity. 
towards him. Yeah, like, he's well, almost like we all... uh, pathetic, pathetically calm. Yeah. yeah, yeah, especially when he's yeah when they show him crawling, crawling on the road. Um, when we cut from cut from the the alchemy scene where he's he's actually you know doing alchemy and smashing glasses, and we get into the street and he's crawling on all fours. There definitely is a sort of a pathetic quality to that sort mm-hmm. of, or even the way that he runs. The way he runs mm-hmm. isn't like he yeah, doesn't he... balance himself with his arms. In yeah. one scene, he's got his arms outstretched like Christ. In another, yeah. they're kind of floating behind him. And mm-hmm. Naruto didn't exist yet. <laughs> <laughs> I thought about Naruto. He's doing a pro, yeah a proto Naruto run. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's all these interact or like there's a scene where like he sees the woman with the officer, and like his the gown his clergyman's gown grows to the floor. And, and beyond and beyond yeah right that mm. was cool that was a, there were it's was visually thing. striking i mean i think we're mm-hmm. the three of us are storytellers so i i feel like we're all kind of going what the hell was that but <laughs> right, right, right not to deter people because like throw this on it's a vibe throw this on mm-hmm. in the background yeah. uh it's a it's a and it's, it's a talking, you know it's 40 obviously so it's 40 yeah, minutes i 40 think minutes yeah mm-hmm. about 40 minutes yeah, and it is striking visually. I mean, mm-hmm. especially, you know, I haven't, I, I have to say, I haven't watched a ton of film from this era, but the stuff I have has been like Charlie Chaplin, um, you know, maybe Buster Keaton, that kind of that kind of stuff mm-hmm. mostly, and, and a couple of German expressionist uh, films. But like, it's for 1928, it feels like it's doing in terms of framing shots and editing and yeah and, and the matching shots mm-hmm. and multiple yeah it's it's very yeah. very interesting and uh like you could believe mm-hmm. if it weren't for the the limitations of the technology used you could believe that this was published on youtube for the first time in the last mm-hmm. 20 years or so right if some yeah. student uh, decided mm-hmm. to make a film like this it would be extraordinary yeah uh, it's it's certainly and and of course it's it has all the uh, not naivete. I can't find the word. It has all the qualities, I suppose, of people who are just learning uh, mm-hmm. and developing a language for a new artistic medium. Yeah. So you have that excitement. It's like, well, what are they going to do next? My God, what what what's coming next? Even if I have no clue what's going on. Yeah. It's, shot by shot, it's it's all exciting. And mm-hmm. and I guess I disagree with something in the description where uh the there's no like overarching narrative. Mm-hmm. It feels like there is an overarching narrative. It's just not what we would traditionally call one because yeah. there's like three characters and it shows this relationship to these three characters over the whole thing. And it feels like it's very internal for the guy. Isn't but- it implied that he tries to separate the the soldier and the woman from within a confessional but the confessional yeah, is open like it, so that we can see that she's confessing and he can see it. Mm-hmm. And he tries to interrupt that. That's well, very yeah, funny. He strangles mm-hmm. the the priest, the priest general. Because the priest and the or not the, the yeah, he strangles the general, right? And his head sort of splits open. Mm-hmm. Uh, also a fun visual. Like, mirror. Very effect. fun visual. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. They do the same yeah, thing in Ghostbusters it's... Afterlife. Gozer. <laughs> Let's the right. uh, <laughs> Shandor or whatever right down the middle. See, it, yeah. it all comes back. It, yeah. uh, everything mm-hmm. returns to Ghostbusters. As it should. Right. As it Indeed. should. I should go rewatch Ghostbusters. I haven't seen that in a while. The original? Yeah. 
Yes. The answer is always yes. The original, maybe the sequel. Probably not any of the remakes. Afterlife is very good. Really? I would, okay. Afterlife is very, very good. After, Afterlife gets the stamp of approval. Uh, okay. For sure. Yeah. Oh, goodness. Now I want... Yeah, anyway. Um, <laughs> I've got... Uh, so I do want to read uh, from the short Wikipedia about the seashell and the clergyman, yeah. and then I'm going to go do. into the blows and bombs bio and try, maybe mm-hmm. we'll try to get a little bit backstage of what was going on with our toe. Um, mm-hmm. So it is a uh, 1928 French experimental film directed by Germaine Dulac, a woman uh, from a scenario, but not by Arto. It premiered in Paris on the 9th of February, 1928. This is a very funny uh, synopsis. The film follows the erotic hallucinations of a priest lusting after the wife of a general. Okay. Uh, Here's the reception and legacy. Although accounts differ, it seems that Artaud disapproved of Dulac's treatment of his scenario. The film was overshadowed by Unchien Andalou, uh, an Andalusian dog, Andalusian dog, written and directed by Louis Louis Banuel and Salvador Dali. Andalou is considered the first surrealist film, but its foundations in the seashell and the clergyman have been all but overlooked. However, the iconic techniques associated with surrealist cinema are all borrowed from this early film. In Lee Jameson's analysis of the film, the surrealist treatment of the image is clear. He writes, The seashell and the clergyman penetrates the skin of material reality and plunges the viewer into an unstable landscape where the image cannot be trusted. Remarkably, Artaud not only subverts the the physical surface image, uh, but also its interconnection with other images. The result is a complex, multi-layered film so semiotically unstable that images dissolve into one another both visually and semantically, truly investing in film's ability to act upon the subconscious. Au contraire, the British Board of Film Censors famously reported that the film was so cryptic as to be almost meaningless. If there is a meaning, it is doubtless objectionable. (laughs) (laughs) I think that's my favorite bit of analysis I've ever heard. I don't know what this means, but if it does mean anything, I hate it. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) That summarizes the relationship between the British and the French in so many <laughs> different ways. Yeah, that's oh, yeah. so very interesting. Uh, I've got a, a few more bits about I, it. I, I got a yeah. thing from the when it when it premiered. Yeah, bring it bring it on, Brad. Bring yeah, it on. so this is from uh, SensesOfCinema.com. This is an article from 2013 about this film. So, um, <clears throat> uh, quote: Germaine Dulac's place in film history has been obscured by the nor- notoriety of the Paris screening of The Seashell and the Clergyman on February 9th, 1928. Uh, stories vary as to the origins of the tumult and whether or not Artaud and Dulac were both even present on the occasion. Ooh. And notes from a 1952 meeting of the Commission of Historical Research on the first French cine- uh, cinema clubs, uh, Madame Colson Malvel, Dulac's companion and assistant on a number of films, but not the seashell and the clergyman is quoted as saying that all the young surrealists were outraged that Artaud did not get to act in the film, but that it was at Dr. Allende's insistence. That was Artaud's psychiatrist, who was also an IS Nin psychiatrist for a while hmm. uh, on account of Artaud's perceived nervous condition. So Artaud's psychiatrist said, hey, you shouldn't be in this. You're already frayed and about to snap. Right. Um, at the same meeting. 
uh, Tal- this guy, Talier, founder of the Ursulines, and the Ursulines was the uh, the studio where they screened the, sh- the seashell and the clergyman, um, said that he saw a man take a whistle from his pocket that night before the film had even started. When Talier asked the man why he would protest the film before it began, the man said, I'm whistling because I abhor the cinema. <laughs> that's another good bit of analysis <laughs> just and i love this i love this uh the, the the apparently all the surrealists all the young surrealists like protested they were there in protest and shouting and things like that and it's mostly just because our toe was not was not in it um wow. so it, this little movie this little movie caused quite a little quite a stir yeah yeah very interesting uh so i've got a few more bits and bobs here uh alan williams has suggested the film is better thought of as a work of or influenced by german expressionism Mm -hmm. uh so there's a bit of an argument is this the first surrealist film or not uh bfi is the first french german expressionist film basically (laughs) yeah surrealist (laughs) just rolls off the tongue a lot better than french Mm. german expressionism i don't disagree with that though it's got a lot Mm. of german expressionism in there it really does it's uh, the bfi included the seashell and the clergyman on a list of 10 great feminist films stating germaine Dulac was involved in the avant-garde in paris in the 1920s, both the smiling Madame Baudet from 22 and the seashell and the clergyman are important early examples of radical experimental feminist filmmaking and provide an antidote to the art made by the surrealist brotherhood. The latter film, an interpretation of uh, Antonine Artaud's book of the same name, which I believe is lost. I, I'm going to get it, get into the book here in a second, is a visually imaginative critique of patriarchy, state and church and of male sexuality. On its premiere, the Surrealists greeted it with noisy derision, calling Dulac un vache. I don't know what that means. What does un vache mean? <laughs> Anybody here speak French? Uh, help uh, us out a little bit. Oh, a cow. <laughs> a cow. Uh, That's very nice. That's very nice. Good job, Surrealists. Uh, what a very but- surrealist insult. Kind of just like right over the base on that one. Yeah. 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 They saved all their creativity for, uh, for other things apparently. Yeah. But I mean, yeah. Who wonder, one wonders if these like who these surrealists were, right. Were these the groupies or were these, I don't know. I also wonder what a roving gang of young surrealists looks like. (laughs) Like the closest I can get is like the mods of the sixties. Yeah. Yeah. But like with t- more turtlenecks involved. <laughs> <laughs> that paints a picture, that phrase. Now, a little bit more about the musical scores. Uh, the silent film is popular with musicians and has been scored by many groups. It was one of the first films scored by silent orchestra and performed by them at the National Museum of Women in the Arts in Washington, D.C. in the year 2000. This was the first film to be scored by live accompaniment band uh, band minima by V. I think it's just a typo. Their do their uh, debut performance was at the UK's Shunt Vaults at London Bridge in 2006. It's also been rescored by Stephen Severin of Susie and the Banshees and the Black Cat Orchestra. And it goes on. Uh, mm-hmm. So you know, lots of people have taken to this and said, "Ooh, I'm going to play around with this and try to score it." I like that as an exercise uh, yeah, because it's, yeah. there's a lot of room to play with it, isn't there? Mm-hmm. And that I. The music, the one we listened to or watched, the music in it is, it really sells the film. 
for me this music and like the the aural experience of because it shifts from very competent music that is recognizable in genre like there's romantic stuff there's like dark and moody stuff and then it interjects it with this almost childlike playing this off rhythm tinny almost toy instruments feeling that really throws you off as the film itself is getting warped and all of that a very interesting musical experience yeah the scene in the confessional was particularly striking for me music wise it felt very I don't even know what they were making it on, but it's very plucky and very like Mm -hmm. uh, it was something we'd put in like a horror film now, potentially Um, not because it was so like so much doom. But yeah, because there's almost like a childhood quality to it. Mm -hmm. It's it's it it's uh, purposely done amateurish in a way like, you know, very deliberately amateurish. So, yeah, I found it very evocative. And I think they use a tin whistle at some point they might have it's yeah. wild yeah this is a bit of a de- detour but we haven't talked about skinnamarink yet, uh, yet on the pod are y'all turned on to skinnamarink i don't think i am it's I, a it's a new horror movie you can find it somewhere streaming online you kind of got to go find a special mm-hmm. link but i think it was made for like fifteen thousand canadian dollars in <laughs> edmonton or calgary mm-hmm. one of those towns and it's a horror film that you're either going to love or you're going to hate. I think I think you guys would get it. It's <laughs> it's like if you ever had a, a childhood uh, like sleep paralysis or night terrors. I get adulthood sleep paralysis sometimes. <gasps> Woo! It Let's go. Influential <laughs> on my work. Mm, mm. Good to know, Monty. <laughs> would you care to uh, let me finish my skin of a rank point? But it, yeah. yeah uh, it sort of simulates that and people who don't like it are like, it's just pictures of open doors and corners and rooms and TVs. And I'm like, yeah, yeah, it, <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it haunts my dreams is very, okay. very well made. And it does that thing where it uses sort of like old timey cartoon music, scene sourced music. Mm-hmm. I want to watch it again. It's genuinely very, very creepy. Someone described it. I think the, <laughs> the review they used to sell it is like it's as it's like if David Lynch directed Poltergeist. Oh, uh, huh. so okay. Yeah, skin him a rink. Monty, tell us about your traumatic dreams. Yeah. So <laughs> when so I have had sleep paralysis a handful of times in my life, all of them as an adult. I have in my youth um when i was like single digit age seven eight nine somewhere in that range i had a night where for reasons i'll never know and never be able to explain i had vivid hallucinations uh for several hours which in retrospect very funny because my first one was a group of puppies running around on the bed we were on uh, staying at like we were staying at a family house a group of puppies running around on this bed and I see these dogs I'm a kid my dad's sitting on the bed I say hey dad look out don't get bit by those dogs and my dad goes who cannot see the dogs he goes what <laughs> and I go those sure. dogs don't get bit by the dogs and it just spiraled out from there uh, the memorable ones I saw like a kitchen knife floating above the bed just like slowly mm-hmm making chopping motions. I saw just a oh. eerie green glow coming in through the window. 
I saw tentacles coming out from under the uh, blanket that we were using. And that was a fun night. Um, that And it never happened again after that. But I have had sleep paralysis the first time in college where I didn't see anything because I kept my eyes closed because I knew if I opened them, I'd see something. Mm-hmm. But you, what happens is you wake up. Your brain wakes up. You are awake. Your body is not awake and you cannot move it. You are stuck there and there's nothing you can do about it. And this, you get hit with this sense that the world is ending right now. Mm-hmm. And all you can do is lie there with your eyes closed and feel something moving around on your mattress. Um, I, I don't like this at all. It was, <laughs> and then, and then you wake up and it's you and it's everything is back to normal. And the only thing to do is either go about your day or go back to sleep. <laughs> um, I had yeah. it the first time I was staying over at my girlfriend's house. I had it. Oh, um, where I woke up, uh, like my brain woke up. I opened my eyes and I could hear someone in the apartment outside of the room walking around and i was trying to yell to wake my girlfriend up because someone's here there's no one supposed to be here someone is in the apartment and i can feel something around my feet walking around and like a cat like if you're on a mattress with a cat and you can feel where it walks like that uh and then the last time of note i woke up I saw just what looked like an electrified uh, cardiovascular system of like an after image. Like when you close your eyes after you look at a light of a woman standing in my room and dancing. And I tried to scream and then I just fell back asleep. And I had to text my roommate in the morning and say, hey, did I scream last night? Because I remember (laughs) trying to. Whoa. Um. And that was a wild time. And um, it's influenced some of the more horror-based work that I've done. Uh, We did a... I'm going to talk about myself again. Hi, everybody. We did a play, me and my buddy Chase, called A Bell Tolls. We've done it twice now. It is an eldritch horror retelling of A Christmas Carol. And the three ghosts are replaced with these horrible nightmare creatures. And as we were doing it, we, we did it live. We did it as a pseudo immersive production. So I brought an audience volunteer on stage to sit in the chair and be the, like the nephew that our Scrooge is talking to. Hmm. And we talked about it and Chase has also experienced uh, this in a much more vividly visual way than I have and how that has informed how we do these horrible monster stories to people because we've seen them in our rooms and then we had to go back to sleep. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Very cool. Yeah. I used to have sleep paralysis as a kid, for sure. I definitely have some memories of almost like a, almost like an alien abduction kind of a vibe Mm -hmm. locked frozen in my room. There's a a horrific kind of humming noise glowing light. And then just the corner of the room and not, and somehow seeing it but being unable to move 
totally frozen, uh, paralyzed. They call it sleep paralysis. Mm -hmm. Your eyes will kind of flicker and they they theorize that that's sort of what's causing it is like, because people will see bees, right? And different, different, but yeah, man, it's intense. It is Hmm. wild. I highly suggest it. um, If you've ever got the (laughs) opportunity to have sleep paralysis, go ahead and do it once. Lean into it. Yeah. Well, I say this to all our guests, Monty, but I hope you get the help you need. <laughs> <laughs> I, Me too. I just, but I'm glad that you're able, I really am authentically glad you're able to, to take, take that and work with it. Well, that's, uh, that's what that's you do. The fun right? thing is after the sleep paralysis, you're like, oh, that was fake. Right. Uh, and I didn't have to even move for it. So. Right. Well, yeah. yeah, I mean, it's 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 like a bad dream in that way, right? There's a there's a real relief when you wake up from a bad dream. Mm-hmm. It's like you can still kind of feel the after effects emotionally for for a little while. But like, you know, I had a dream. I had a dream not too long ago, not to just talk about dreams, but in the dream, I was I was I had been caught for a crime I committed like 20 years ago and I was going to go to prison for the rest of my life. That was the dream. Ooh. And then I woke up and, it, and for about three minutes, it was still real. And then, like, I went down and got coffee. I was like, oh, that's not happening. <laughs> oh, good. oh, good. I don't have to worry about that anymore. <laughs> yeah, it was a tremendous, like, weight off my shoulders, you know? It's funny. Mm-hmm. So I, so I can see yeah. that. Yeah, you come out of that. And you it, and I think these things have had a, a larger influence on art than um, is often acknowledged. I mean, HP, we, were ta- we did our episode on HP Lovecraft, and he had you know, not the exact same experiences as, as either of you guys, but he had, he called them the night gaunts. He was visited by these sort of like leathery demon creatures who kept trying to steal him. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, we all know that he grew up to have a completely normal life. Yeah. Mm. Right. Ex- <laughs> extremely loving person. Right. Yeah. Right. Right. So, Very and, well and, you know, right. right. But so I think, I think these things are, I think these things are, um, everywhere in in the mm-hmm. arts versions of this yeah totally agree monty thanks for sharing that i've got a little more about uh Arteau now and this is from the blows and bombs book Arteau is known as the writer of one of the three great examples of surrealist cinema the seashell and the clergyman the other two being uh bunwell's shannon delu and lage d'or uh the film uh, excuse me, but the film has the reputation of having been butchered by its director, Germain Dulac, who was insensitive to Artaud's intentions. Dulac was a prolific filmmaker associated with the Impressionist group, which included uh, Abel Gantz. She had no connection with the Surrealist movement. It is certain that Dulac and her producers conspired to keep Artaud away from the shooting and the editing of the film. Mm. He had wanted to co-direct and act in it. They chose a time when they knew that Artaud would be contractually bound to his acting role in Dreyer's The Passion of Joan of Arc, which, of course, is an all-time classic film. His original scenario uh, from April of 1927 came under a certain amount of revision before the shooting period of August to September of 27. The levels of alteration are evident from a consultation of the various stages of the shooting script. And the technical heaviness of the film, with its complex superimpositions and distortions, sits badly with the poetic clarity of Artaud's scenario, where information about the means to transfer the written image to the cinematic image is virtually non-existent. But it was his exclusion from the filmmaking process which particularly incensed Artaud and led to the the disruption of the film's premiere at the Ursuline's Cinema Club in Paris on the 9th of February of 28. 
Despite his exclusion from the Surrealist group over a year earlier, Arto had considerable support from the Surrealists. I like how they're like gangs. It's like, yeah, yeah these are my guys. <laughs> we got to get back to this. We really well, have to. We yeah. did. It's just called Reddit now. Mm. Mm. <laughs> Fair enough. Or Twitter. Yeah. There's a lot or of Twitter. we got our we got our Twitter mobs and our group chats on Twitter. Oh, for absolutely. Sure. They're the yeah. mobs oh, yeah. on Twitter, but but on Reddit, mm. they can all go to the same the same mm. subreddit. Awful yeah. place. Oh, yes. right. or the circle <laughs> jerk for the same place. T.me slash art of dark pod, the telegram <laughs> channel. It's really a lot of fun. We had some some very high powered pen autism yesterday. It took over there was the a chat. lot. There was a lot of yeah. fountain pen talk. I actually learned a lot because I don't know anything about fountain pens. Yeah, I yeah, love fountain cool. pens. Yeah, yeah. I have so one on my desk right now. You yeah, never you know, know, you know like what's... the Telegram chat. Yeah, join the Telegram. T.me slash Art of Dark Pod. It's really fun. Get in there. We have a good time. You could about imagine if you're if you know this pod by now, you're a fan of this pod. You can just about imagine what a hundred people who are into Art of Darkness, uh, <laughs> what that chat looks like. It's very, it's, it's pretty stuff. benign. Yeah. yeah, yeah, it's good. Yeah. Um. Now, anyway, what, he, I'm not ahead. done. Uh, hang on, sorry, Brett. Arto <laughs> had considerable support from the Surrealists over the betrayal of his scenario. All contemporary press accounts indicate that there's a picture of our toe in 27 for uh, for the YouTube people. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Good. yeah. This is this is back when he was still kind of an A-list looking stud and not the yeah. goblin he would later become. Right. <laughs> uh, it was our toes friend, Robert Dano, who initiated the volley of invective directed at Germain Dulac and that the showing ended in violence. Two accounts exist of Artaud's own participation in the brawl. In one, Artaud ran wild and shattered the mirrors in the cinema's foyer, crying, Gulu, Gulu. I don't, it could be something, <laughs> it could be nothing. In the other, less likely account, he was sitting quietly with his mother and uttered only one word during the glossolalic uproar. Enough. Yeah. Ah. Uh, let me go on one more para here. After the event, the seashell and the clergyman was abruptly taken off the Ursuline's programming, a program, and, and it has resurfaced only irregularly since then. The film was rejected by the British Board of Film Censors with the justification, which we've heard, but I'm going to read it again because it's so funny. It's good. The film is yeah. so cryptic as to be meaningless. If there is meaning, it is doubtless objectionable. <laughs> uh, <laughs> well, in, in any case, uh, he he would do other film work. Uh, he and you know he had lots of theories and feelings about film. But uh, Brad, you were going to say something. Yeah, I just have you know knowing, being familiar with Arto a little bit as a person now after these episodes, you know, okay, it's easy. I feel like it's easy to say like, oh, Germain de Lac, they you know they took his idea and they ran away from him and they avoided him and then they made their own thing and it was butchered. But how? I mean. Working with Arto was probably no treat. Yeah, how much of that was a personal safety matter, <laughs> right? Or like, right. how much of how what was this original idea, right? Was right. it like a fully written script, or was it a napkin scrawling that right. got interpreted interpreted into this? Because whatever this film is, without knowing the source, it's pretty well executed. So mm -hmm. how different? I mean. I, I, unless she took major liberties I, as a as a piece of film, I would think he'd be pretty happy with it. But well, and I have something here that that speaks to this. I think his ego was probably hurt because he wasn't included. Uh, but I'll read a little bit here. Um, 
The film was overshadowed in 1929 by Chien Delo. Artaud claimed that this film, along with Jean Cocteau's The Blood of a Poet, had taken displacement techniques and hallucinatory imagery from the film he had written. By 1932, he had partially reversed his attitude toward the seashell and the clergyman, claiming it to be a precursor of Bunuel and Cocteau's films. So now I'm taking credit. <laughs> now that and, it's now that it's good. Right, right, right. Uh, in fact, Germain Dulac's interpretation follows Artaud's elliptical narrative of a priest's sexual obsession with surprising fidelity. Her visual pyrotechnics are all that obscure the essential substance of Artaud's scenario. But what was filmically unseizable by Dulac was Artaud's innovative project for the surrealist cinema, which could not be carried out without a radical obliteration of cinematic history and a reworking of the rapport between the film image and the spectator going on. In opposition to the dream descriptions, which make up the unfilmed scenarios of the other surrealists, such as Robert Deneau and Benjamin Pere, Artaud proposed not a translation of the dream and its content, but an exhaustive interrogation of the systems of dreaming to discover their mechanisms and their structures in collapse. In this way, he wanted to reconstitute the violence and independence of dreaming as a process directly projected into cinematic imagery. His aim was to realize this idea of visual cinema where psychology itself is devoured by the acts. His theoretical objection to Germain Dulac's film was that it reduced his scenario to a flat depiction of the dream from which it had issued. Artaud had drawn his primary material from the scenario, not from one of his own dreams, but from the transcription of a dream written down by his friend Yvonne Allendi. This distance was necessary for Artaud to launch the analysis of the dreaming process, which is tangible at the intersection between his scenarios themselves and his writing about them. In juxtaposition, these two elements envisage a reinvention of cinema based around its visceral, transforming propulsion against the spectator's physical reflexes, uh, reflexes and, and reactions. It is through its superficial scrupulousness and theoretical vacuity that Deluxe film veers away from Artaud's filmic concepts so Arto had some ideas about film the same way he had some ideas about uh theater yeah mm -hmm. yeah but but here's here's my my qualm with that and i could be totally wrong i'm putting myself in the position of because i actually like this i liked this film right so I, I gotta defend it a little bit yeah um i i i kind of put myself in Germain jermaine Dulac's position and i hear arto say that and i say what the hell are you talking about? <laughs> yeah. That, that all sounds great. Do you know yeah, what do a, it. Here's a camera a, here's does? A, yeah, here's a camera. Go ahead. I'll sit here and smoke a cigarette. And then when you're ready to make a movie, we'll make a movie. I, I don't know. And that maybe is being a little too I, reactionary. But I think Artaud at this period was a bit of a diva. I think he was always a bit of a diva, but he, he could back it up with. I mean, he just went, he would go on. I mean, at the same time, he was doing that iconic role in Joan of Arc. And mm -hmm. uh, so he just seems like a little difficult to work with. Yeah. I mean, yeah. look at both scenarios in how he participated in the brawl. I mean, you're a diva no matter which side of the coin lands facing up. You know, you're sitting there with your mom and you say, enough, enough. Or you're smashing galoo, galoo. Same coin, yeah. same coin. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's 
Arto is a bit much, uh, but, but he's, I mean, he's a genius. And, and like, yeah, genius. I, I, yeah, that's the thing when, when you're describing and I was being half joking, like describing what his ideas were for it. That is all very interesting. Theoretically, mm-hmm. it's just I, I doubt that that's readily executable, you know, it's, right. I wonder mm-hmm. what you would make of uh, Skinnamarink and then come back because, uh, you know, yeah. just uh, watch that maybe with Arto's idea of yeah. cinema in mind, because it, it does have the feeling like, oh, God, I'm in a dream now. Right, right. Which very, very difficult to do. David Lynch does it very well uh, cinematically, but this was so early. And, and even even this uh, film did us have us talking about dreams. It is a dreamlike uh, it cinematic is experience. So, yeah. 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 Uh, very, very fun. On the After Dark for Patreon, patreon.com slash Art of Dark Pod, we're going to talk about Anna Isnin. We're going to talk about the uh, the Austrian painter uh, and Artaud's claims to have had an argument with Hitler in a bar. <laughs> so that should be uh, an awful lot of fun. Uh, Monty, tell people again a little bit about your work. Tell us a little bit about ink. Like, wh- where did this yeah. idea come from? Um, yeah. Mm. So me and Alex have wanted to work together on a, a big project for a while now. And this is the one that we settled on. Alex, I think last year or the year before, did uh, another audio drama called Voices from the Umbra. Uh, it's 12 episodes. Go check it out. It, it's very, it, it's post-apocalyptic. It's dark. It's poetic. There is a multimedia edge to it where if you go to the website, there's writings and all of this stuff. It's very fun. Uh, we had this idea uh, to do a big convention about two artists that didn't exist and then also create all the art that got them these fans. Yeah, and I we, like that. Um, great, wonderful idea. Uh, do you know how a camera works? <laughs> um that's just a lot of work and it kind of petered out. Maybe we'll revisit it. But uh, Alex, after that, reached out. I was like, I want to do uh, an audio drama. I want to do a podcast. How do you feel about these ideas? And he sent a couple of ideas over. And one of them was two aliens working on a ship that uh, incorporates worlds. And that was the one that excited me the most because in fiction created by humans, even if the characters aren't humans, they're people. Mm-hmm. Right. Mm-hmm. And we kind of ran with that. We ran with this idea of the extraneous but interesting folder, which is a centerpiece of the story. It is a folder that these two aliens put all of the interesting stories they find across the universe in so that they can go and revisit these stories. Just m- meaningful little things that they find about like it's a- about the importance of stories on mm-hmm. some level. And how it evolved from what was originally going to be like a sci-fi comedy anthology series into a very personal uh, comedy series about the evolving friendship of these two aliens as they first meet each other. And one of them has been stuck in this terrible department where they just catalog data all day. And the other one is brand new and fresh faced classic dynamic mm-hmm. and seeing what we can do as these two become genuine friends with each other. And also what interesting stories happen in their universe. Like the first episode has a, a fun story about a flower and the second one goes on and has this fun kind of um, uh, 
a Bridgerton-like moment about a whole bunch of a plant society. And then there's going to be stories about like a planet where something like a god actually existed or other stories mm-hmm. were like th- the oldest thing in the universe is now torn down to its basic components and it's in our ship somewhere. Mm-hmm. Just a bunch of fun little things like yeah, that. Very and cool, it's yeah. funny and there's a bunch of original music in it. All the characters have theme songs. Every episode's going to have its own theme. I like the general theme song too. I think it's pretty neat. Hope you like lots of sci-fi beeps and boops. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. That sounds cool, man. And, and it sounds like such an open platform in terms of you, you can kind of, because you have all these opportunities to write new little stories. So those mm-hmm. can go anywhere you want them, which is a, which is exciting. It's exciting. Yeah. And then you plan out 30 episodes and you have to come up right. with 30 of these fun right. little stories. Yeah, yeah. I got How long I, is each I, I episode? What that. are you shooting for? Uh, like every episode minutes? is like 25 to 35 minutes. Okay. Right there. Uh, great for a commute. Yes. If you're the kind of person that listens to a podcast on a commute or a lunch break, very easy to get a full episode in there. For sure. Awesome. Yeah, between listening to six hours of Aleister Crowley or five <laughs> episodes on Anthony Narto, really, I, I really enjoy the, the first episode. I'm going to put what? on some more. Yeah. How frequently are you releasing them? Do you have the, a regular cadence? or is Yeah, it it's going to be every other Monday. Okay. So on uh, the first episodes were the 16th of this month, January. Next episodes are going to be January 30th. There'll be two more episodes. So at the end of this month, we'll have five episodes out. And after that, it'll be uh, one every other Monday. And there's plenty of content now to go and get started. Yeah, for sure. And and for people who don't know about It's All Red, like a metaphor or something, (laughs) which is at badmouthtc.com, what's that play about? (laughs) So (laughs) It's All Red, like a metaphor or something, is about the decadent sweetness of the color red and self-defeating prophecies. Uh, it can also be about the stock market. If you want it to be about the stock market, it was very, it started um, when the GameStop uh, pump was going on. And there's a couple of scenes in there that reference it or things like it. Uh, it also got started because <laughs> my therapist at the time told me I should write a, write a journal. So I wrote this play instead. <laughs> Is this before or after the, the horrible dreams? Oh, the dream the dreams are consistent. <laughs> That's during. great. Yeah. yeah, during. Monty, thank thanks so much for being generous with your time coming on the oh, pod. You're always welcome back. Check out Ink, check out It's All Red. Uh, I'm gonna put Monty's website uh on the mm-hmm. uh the show notes yeah. so you can't miss it. Uh Monty D Montalegre, we really appreciate it. We're gonna do another uh, 20, 30 minutes for the uh the after dark. Brad, do you have anything uh any final words on uh Arto and particularly the seashell and the clergyman? Any no, final thoughts? No, not particular. Well, let me give you one thing. So in the okay. correspondence between uh Jermaine Dulac and Arto, there was there was some suggestion that they might uh introduce the film when they screened it with the, some kind of explanatory note right um <laughs> this is what Arto said about that in a letter quote uh they spoke to me about an explanatory text to be projected before the film but as far as I'm concerned I'm not very much in favor of a written preamble. I think that the film is sufficient in itself and that there's no possible mistake. I never considered this film as the demonstration of any theory whatsoever. 
Uh, it's a film of pure images, and the meaning must be gotten from the radiation itself of these images. So interesting to counterpoint that, Kevin, with the part that you're saying. And as we know, Artaud is a guy who's kind of all over the place. So he may have felt like there's no theory in the morning and that the entire thing is a is a theoretical treatise in the afternoon. Right. He's a, he's a yeah. So he he may have uh, felt like the theory didn't make its way into the film. But then again, That's I don't true. know. And this yeah. is all in translation, too. I, I, yeah. I'm i not disagreeing with you, Brad. I think <laughs> this man is very, very hard to pin down. Yes, yes. That's Monty, that's my point. Agree. Yeah, I would agree with that. Very hard to pin down. <laughs> but we're going to try to pin him down for another 20 or 30 minutes on the After Dark. Patreon.com slash Art of Dark Pod. Monty D. Montalegre, thanks for joining us. And uh, I can't wait. I'm going to be be doing Victor Groon tomorrow evening on uh, on the pod. Do you know who Victor Groon uh, was, Monty? I don't. I don't. He's the man. This is a true horror story. Who invented the mall? Ooh. <laughs> Ooh. Talk about night terrors. There you go. Lots of bad dreams of mall. Lots of bad dreams.